CityWars Lectures podcast, Let's Talk About ESG. I'm Margarita Kirakosian, news editor, and joining me today is Jonathan Bailey, head of ESG investing at Newberger Berman. Jonathan, thank you for joining us today. Hi, it's lovely to be with you. Mm-hmm. Jonathan, a lot has been happening at Newberger Berman when it comes to ESG investing and engagement in 2020 specifically. Well, one initiative that uh, looks especially interesting is um, advanced proxy voting. I think it's called uh, NB25+. Plus if I am correct. It was a pilot for us in 2020. And it really started um, when we were reflecting on the 2019 season about this time last year with our portfolio managers. And we were thinking about some of the important votes where we feel that we had made a difference in the outcome of the votes um, and that we'd done a lot of work to engage with the companies ahead of time and they decided either to support management or to oppose management. Um, And none of that was really out there. Nobody really knew that that was happening. You know, all they got was a, a regulatory filing at some point at the end of the year with, you know, hundreds of different votes sort of tabulated. And, you know, I felt that we needed to actually sort of tell the story proactively. Um, so, you know, with the support of our portfolio managers, we went through the process of, of doing that um, with the Advanced Proxy Voting Initiative. And we put out a set of governance and engagement principles. Uh, and we looked for opportunities among our 200 largest economic positions on behalf of clients to draw attention to companies that were doing great things and also companies that could do better things uh, on those principles. Uh, and if it's helpful, I could, I could give you a couple of examples. Yes, that would be great, actually. So who were the winners and who were the laggards, let's say? So, you know, one of the things that um, we often get an opportunity to vote on are shareholder proposals on environmental and social topics. And uh, there's often a lot of nuance about how a company performs on an environmental social uh, topic. Uh, and at the end of the day, you, you either vote for the proposal or against the proposal. Mm-hmm. And so we wanted to try and show some of that nuance. So two examples on gender uh, pay equity uh, reporting, I think help bring that to life. Uh, one is a, a company that I'm sure most of your listeners know, Adobe, that produces the PDF software, um, cloud uh, services and so on. Um, and they are a company that since 2018 has actually achieved global gender pay equality. Right? I mean, that's a, a step that, that, frankly, very few companies have been able to do or uh, companies that have done it have not put out rigorous and independently evaluated reporting that demonstrates that. Um, so we felt that in this case, a shareholder proposal pushing for more reporting on gender pay equality really wasn't necessary because they had excellent reporting, but more importantly, excellent practice, right? Excellent mm-hmm. performance on that topic. Um, in contrast, uh, Cigna, a U.S. healthcare uh, provider in the insurance space, they uh, not necessarily have poor performance, but they don't have the same quality of reporting, and they haven't re- achieved global gender pay equality. So a very similar proposal at Cigna. Uh, we were very happy to support and push the company uh, to improve, and we laid out some very specific things in the way that they had constructed the reporting, that the segmentation uh, of the sampling of the comparison of men and women's pay um, who was doing that reporting that we thought would improve their um, uh, improve the information that we as investors had to evaluate this very material topic for, for, for the company. So that side by side, right, Adobe and Cigna, mm-hmm. we think helps to make it clear to all companies, you know, what do you need to do to be best in class at gender pay equality and gender pay equality reporting? 
that's what Adobe's doing, and that's what companies should be uh, aiming to, to, to do. And if, if they do, then we'll be happy to support management and oppose proposals that might be filed that may not be appropriate for, for that particular company. Mm -hmm. That sounds interesting. Well, uh, in terms of things that you are working on now, uh, in the proxy voting territory, because I think one of the uh, highlights of this new tool of yours is actually disclosure ahead of the voting, let's say, of where you want to get with it. So can you give me uh, some examples or a little bit more detail on that, for example? Yes. I mean, the key thing is that if you if you give companies, you know, uh, significant advance notice, right, we're talking, you know, weeks of notice and, and you're putting and then you put it out in public, you know, multiple days before the vote, it helps to really stimulate debate. Um, and so we felt that that was critical. And, and so there are, you know, things like executive compensation, right? It's, it's obviously important to look at the quantum of executive compensation. There are pay packages that are just out of touch uh, with reality. Uh, but it's also important to look in detail at the metrics. And just because one company has a metric, you know, or a target in their compensation uh, plan doesn't mean it's appropriate for another company, right? So one of the things that we found was helpful was to draw attention to plans that we thought had been well constructed by looking at specific indicators and explaining that. So for example, in the last um, uh, uh, cycle, you know, we looked at CSX. Uh, it's a rail uh, company in the US. Um, there were questions uh, in the debate that was happening from some shareholders about uh, a payment to a former executive. And certainly those were issues that we, we looked at. Um, but we wanted to draw attention to the fact that CSX had introduced into their compensation plan a worker health and safety metric. Now, mm -hmm. we don't think that ESG metrics should be in every single compensation plan. It's not appropriate. But for a company like CSX that was going through a series of operational uh, improvements that were largely around efficiency gains, the last thing we want to see happen is, is executives to be pushing for efficiencies and then doing that at the expense of workers. So in this case, having a worker health and safety metric in the compensation plan we felt was appropriate and helpful. Um, there were other examples where we drew attention to specific capital deployment metrics um, that were more relevant and important given strategic changes in a particular company's direction. So those compensation plans often don't get that attention on the indicators and the targets, but they really matter because if we work in the investment world, we believe that incentives matter, metrics matter. That's ultimately what we're paid for by our clients. So, you know, it's important that we put that attention and focus uh, on the incentives and the metrics that the CEOs of the companies that we're investing in are given as well. Mm -hmm. So a lot of market commentators uh, notice as well that uh, the S in the ESG acronym is going to become so much greater, especially in 2020, given COVID-19 and how much pressure it exerts onto uh, just everybody, basically, and especially on salaries, on people's job security. So here, I think one interesting thing is we're going to see job cuts, obviously, because industries will have to make tough decisions. But from an ESG perspective, how do you look at job cuts and how do you define when it's too many, let's say, for example? So I think one of the things here is about the um, philosophy of the management team. And, you know, I'd, I'd point to a company like Delta, uh, airline company, you know, who has been just as hard hit as, as frankly, every other airline company out there uh, during this period and through no fault of their own, right? Be because of government restrictions and, and ultimately the, the collapse in, in travel 
as a result of you know borders being closed and, and, and business shutdowns and so on. Um, but if you look at the, the, the steps that they've taken uh, to try and hold off on on having to make involuntary redundancies, uh, really up until this point, right? I mean, they they have taken um, an approach that has tried as much as possible to retain staff, to offer voluntary packages, uh, to, to phase that uh, as gently as possible. That is not the approach that we've seen other airlines take. Um, you know, mm -hmm. some of your listeners may may be uh, uh, listening to, to this in Europe. You know, they will know that there are airlines uh, in Europe um, that have taken very different approaches um, and have been far less constructive. Now, of course, there are policy support and, and government support that different regions have offered. Um, but, but even within the US, we see a contrast between the sort of leadership that Delta has taken and the action that other airlines have taken uh, in, in the same country. And one of the things that we see in the data is if you look back before the crisis, you look at sentiment analysis, uh, basically what were workers saying about mm -hmm. working at Delta compared to other airlines, you saw that they came in with a stronger bond with their workforce, with workers saying that they believed in the future direction of the company at a higher rate than most other airlines uh, and had greater belief in the CEO's direction. Um, and, and that actually carried through, right? Of course, this is a horrible, traumatic time for anyone working in the industry, but you've seen that build of trust um, that was there before the crisis, you know, helping the company uh, to maintain a constructive relationship with its workforce through this period. Um, whereas companies that never had that trust um, you know, uh, saw that collapse even more uh, in the period after March and April. So that's why we think of this as, it, yes, you know, there are hard choices that companies are making now, but those hard choices aren't made in isolation to how they have engaged with workers for, for decades. Uh, and it just shows you that great management teams who are focused on social issues in good times can have more of that trust and faith um, to, to be able to support them and to come to constructive conclusions during difficult periods too. Mm -hmm. And if we think about the environmental dimension, I think there are multiple ways of looking at it, but one big one would be, for example, deforestation and how, for example, meat producers are contributing or not contributing to it. So from your perspective, what are the engagement kind of authorities you have comes to environmental aspect? Well, I would imagine that different sectors require different attention as well. And maybe if you could name the biggest maybe engagement success you had in that specific uh, aspect. So I think that you're right. Environmental topics, you know, sector by sector, we have a, a materiality matrix that we use to sort of focus on the issues that are most material. Uh, you know, for a particular uh, industry or, or sector, and, and we use that to guide our, our engagement priorities and our, and our work um, in assessing companies. And that varies depending on, you know, whether it's an equity investment or credit, um, you know, because our risk profile is different. So, so that, that, that underlies our approach. Um, in, in terms of the engagements though, you know, we, we think that um, some of the work that's been done with utilities in the US um, to encourage and support them in their transition towards a lower carbon future um, has been particularly important. Um, you know, we, we know that, um, that, that there's a number of, of US utilities that have had coal fired power generating capacity. Um, and that, you know, if you go back even a decade ago, was a much larger proportion of the US um, uh, electricity generating uh, 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 mix. That has come down and it is going down. And we've been pleased by the engagement we've had with a number of the large US utilities um, to get them to commit towards an ultimately net zero 
um, uh, end goals and a phase out of their coal generating assets over the next decade or so um, to bring them in line with a science-based approach uh, that's consistent with the objectives of the Paris Climate Agreement. And the fact that that's happening, you know, absent of uh, necessary support from the federal government just shows you that the economics of this transition are clear and that by engaging with companies to set those clear transition timelines, uh, they can create certainty for us as investors and they can win our support for the capital investment they need to bring in new renewable uh, sources of power and natural gas where that's appropriate. Mm-hmm. And is that across the board with utility companies that you invest in or is it kind of like specific names, let's say? So it's certainly been something that we've been in- engaging across the board um, and, and we've been pleased to partner uh, with the Transition Pathways Initiative, a research mm-hmm. project led by the London School of Economics and, and, and a number of um, asset owners, uh, primarily out of the UK and Europe, uh, including uh, the Church of England and, and Brunel Pension Partnership. Um, who've been putting in place a framework to provide uh, a quantitative comparison between the progress that individual companies are making. Uh, and so if you look at companies like AES, uh, you know, who, who, who made a number of these commitments uh, over the last couple of years, you know, it's helpful to have a framework that can say, okay, is that commitment aligned with a two degree transition and with the Paris Climate Agreement or not? Uh, and, and then have transparency, right? That we can use when engaging with the companies to say, look, this framework, the Transition Pathways Initiative Framework, is one that we're using in our own proprietary ESG analysis. We think other investors increasingly are going to use. Here is where your commitments stack up on it, and here's where your peers are. And and we found that to be a helpful tool in engaging companies like AES um, as they've made enhanced commitments to, to transition their generating capacity. One of the interesting initiatives that Newburgh Berman had, I think this year, was the launch of the um, sustainability-linked credit facility. So it sounds very uh, interesting, but maybe not quite clear for people who are not familiar with that. Uh, if you could walk me through the idea behind it and how it helps with the engagement, that would be great. Yes. So as a firm, you know, we, like any company, um, want to have access to a credit line, you know, if we need to use it for, for any purpose. Um, and so normally when you, you know, get a credit line as an individual or a company, uh, you pay a certain interest rate and that's sort of the end of it. Um, we, we actually thought, well, hang on a minute, you know, we, we're a private employee-owned firm, so we don't publish a lot of detail, you know, that we would if we were a public company on a stock market. Um, You know, we choose voluntarily to put a lot of data out around our diversity practices and statistics and so on. But, you know, it's in our ESG reports or in our annual reports, but it doesn't get the same scrutiny that, you know, a public company might get. Um, And we, so we thought, well, how can we signal more clearly our commitment to sustainability? And so we talked to our banks earlier this year about renegotiating our credit line so that instead of it being just an interest rate that's sort of tied to where uh, you know, mm-hmm. uh, the, the Fed is putting interest rates, that it actually be linked to our sustainability practices as an organization. So we picked three broad areas that we thought were material as an asset manager. You know, one on the social side is diversity. So we've set a series of targets for increasing the proportion of women and people from ethnic minorities uh, both at the firm level as a whole, but also in senior positions over the next several years. Mm-hmm. If we hit those targets, then our uh, borrowing costs, the interest rate we pay, will go down. Um, and um, the, there's two important parts to that. One, we're providing a lot of transparency about 
where we perform today and we know we have more to do. And we're also setting out those targets for improvement and making very clear, this is where we expect and hope to, to get to over the next several years. Um, we also had a, a, a couple of indicators tied to our ESG activities and mm. uh, we referenced the United Nations supported principles for responsible investment assessment scores that they uh, give out each year. And if we continue to have great scores from the PRI, then, um, then our borrowing costs will, will be low. Uh, and our engagement with companies, if we continue to expand the proportion of our AUM um, that we're engaging on ESG issues, then our borrowing costs will be low. Uh, and then finally, on the governance side, we have a, uh, a model that aligns our compensation with our clients and our private uh, employee-owned structure. If that was to change, then our borrowing costs would go up. So, so those sort of three buckets, diversity, uh, our ESG approach, and our governance model together uh, create a set of targets that depending on how we perform on, will change the borrowing cost of the credit facility. And the reason why this has helped our engagement with companies mm -hmm. is that we're often asking companies to tell us those same types of topics, right? Uh, we talked earlier about Adobe and Cigna on diversity reporting. It's much easier for us to say to Cigna, look, put some stronger reporting out on diversity when we're doing that ourselves. And not only are we doing the reporting, we're literally tying our borrowing costs to our progress on diversity. Um, so we found that it's a helpful tool uh, to engage with companies and, and some companies are choosing to also use sustainability linked credit facilities themselves. Um, mm. you know, we've been pleased to see that, particularly in the industrial sector, uh, that a number of companies have chosen to do this type of structure as well. And, and we think it's a, a great innovation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. Well, it incentivizes you nicely to meet the targets. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see how it goes uh, yeah, every will. year. But yeah, definitely great initiative. Um, another interesting topic for me is the whole fact that Newberger Berman is an American company. And we always think about sustainability or ESG investing very closely connected with Europe because there are loads of regulations coming in, et cetera, et cetera. So being the US company, don't you feel sometimes like you're the Lone Ranger shouted out uh, into the space uh, about all those sustainability issues that no one wants to hear? And how do you actually um, engage other companies in the US in this dialogue, let's say? I, you know, as a as a Brit um, who's been in the in the U.S. for a few years now, um, it's it's always interesting to see uh, the pace of change. Because um, you're right, you know, a decade ago, uh, I was uh, just more than a decade ago. I was I was at a, a Harvard Business School uh, class on uh, sustainable investing, and it was a, a new class. And I think at the start of the of the first class, there was maybe. 20 people in the room and by the end there were about 15 because um, five people walked out and that same class today is uh, 300 other business school MBA students take a year. I mean, it's so, so that there has been a shift in the last decade in, in, in the US and North America more broadly, Canada has also uh, changed uh, in their uh, focus and embrace on this topic. So absolutely, you know, many of our clients in the Netherlands and the UK and Scandinavia uh, you know, are um, very sophisticated and advanced in their expectations on ESG and sustainability. Uh, but, but we have seen a, a significant increase in the last few years here. And in fact, you know, majority of the uh, requests for proposals and due diligence questionnaires we get from North American clients specifically ask about ESG now. And that, that was not the case, um, you know, it was less than 10% mm -hmm. five years ago. 
So, so that, um, that shift is happening. Um, what I think we've done a nice job of as a firm is we have some strategies that began this journey 30 years ago. Um, and, and what we've done is to take that historical belief and strength that maybe was in parts of our firm and to spread it and, uh, and kind of make it something that all of our investment teams are embracing. Um, so by the end of this year, 75% of our assets under management will systematically and demonstrably integrate ESG. Um, that's up from about 30% uh, four years ago. Um, so, you know, we, we've, we've done that process steadily and I, I know that um, it's a competitive uh, market. And so uh, even if some other North American managers are much newer to this, uh, certainly you're seeing them pay more attention to it and uh, try and learn quickly because clients are increasingly asking about it and, and demanding this focus. So, um, so I think it's, it's certainly a changing uh, space in, in North America. Uh, it doesn't kind of like deter you from pursuing the topic, the fact that, for example, uh, Securities and Exchange Commission is not exactly encouraging uh, the subject matter, because you see in Europe there is um, a regulatory push for it, so you know that everybody will have to do it. So do you think that can be a bit of an obstacle or this is a subject to change? You know, you're right. It, it is a challenge for, for a manager who has clients you know, globally to have such a divergent mm -hmm. set of regulations. Um, I would also point out that even within Europe, sometimes what we might hear from the French regulators versus from ESMA mm -hmm. at the European level doesn't always align. So uh, it, 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 there, are, there are challenges uh, for us uh, to, to navigate. And I have great colleagues in our legal and compliance team who, who help us uh, with that. Um, but, but yes, it, it isn't as straightforward in the US when you don't have uh, as supportive an environment from the SEC or the Department of Labor, um, and, and certainly that's, that can be challenging. I think at the end of the day, though, what we do is we look at how our clients are voting with their dollars. And if you look at the data from Morningstar, this year has seen incredible inflows into sustainable uh, and impact and ESG integrated strategies. Um, and so it's very clear that many hardworking Main Street Americans uh, believe that ESG practices um, are helpful from an investment mm -hmm. performance perspective. And if you again look at the data this year, you know, sustainable and impact funds, uh, according to Morningstar, have performed incredibly well. And so, you know, the, the criticism that, that these are non-pecuniary issues, I think, is just uh, misinformed, um, both by the reality of the data and, uh, and by logic. So, um, you know, we, we, we think that at the end of the day, uh, if clients are choosing to put their hard-earned uh, money into uh, strategies that, that focus on ESG and their strategies are performing well, um, then, then clients will be happy and, and, and that's an important part of why we come to work every day. Jonathan, um, you and PRI uh, distinguished Newberger Berman as one of the leaders on climate-related disclosures this year specifically. So firstly, why do you think that happened? Well, you obviously have um, inside knowledge about what you've been working on to reach to that point, uh, to reach that point, sorry. And then secondly, uh, what are you planning to do next? And what would you recommend others to kind of like fall in line with this kind of like ambitious climate disclosure uh, benchmark? Yeah, we were delighted uh, that the, the UN uh, supported BRI, um, put us on, in, in the list of investment managers that, uh, that they gave the leaders designation to. It's the first time investment managers have been eligible for it. And there are some 
um, uh, other managers on that list and specialists like Bridges Fund Manager in the UK, a specialist impact manager that we have a huge amount of respect for, as well as some large uh, peers that, that have been focused on sustainable investing for a long time. Um, so it, it's, a, it's a great group to be part of. And you know, ultimately, the, the, my understanding is that the selection was sort of two, two criteria, really. One was you know, that we had to be um, integrating ESG to a very, very high level and, and we're proud that we mm-hmm. have an A-plus uh, score in every asset class across the board from, from the PRI for the last couple of years. And then, as you said, this specific focus on our work on, on climate reporting and, and, and what we were doing on climate. And, and for us, you know, climate change and, and how to think about climate risk in our portfolios um, has been something we've been working on for, for many years. Um, and you know, we, we're lucky we have a, a team um, of insurance-linked uh, strategy uh, investment professionals who, who are literally writing insurance contracts on climate risk. Um, so we have a, a number of individuals that, within the firm who are trained climate scientists who are doing weather mapping and modeling and so on. Um, so, so that gave us, a, I think, a, a bit of an advantage to be able to think through how changing climate patterns might have an effect on the physical risk of companies, property and equipment and locations and operations and so on. Um, and, and we do um, uh, work with our colleagues to look at single sites uh, you know, single assets, uh, modeling, and, and so on, um, given their capability. Um, but, but we also needed to be able to do things that were more scalable across, you know, thousands of securities. And so, you know, about two years ago, we partnered with a, um, uh, with at that time, a small Swiss organization to build out a climate value at risk capability, um, you know, one of their first paying uh, clients, um, to help look at that physical risk modeling, but also transition business risk uh, modeling. And we built that that capability into our investment processes, our client reporting, and in our ESG annual report for, for last year, you know, we, we published um, our equity books, our climate risk profile, we highlighted um, some of the highest risk uh, names that we own, and talked about the engagement we were doing uh, with those companies. And you know, we, we, we talked about it earlier, one of them was a, was a big US utility with mm-hmm. a large number of coal assets. And they look high risk because of the, the coal assets they have today, and the location of those assets, uh, which are coastal and potentially, you know, uh, exposed to, to physical risk. Um, and so by engaging and getting commitments around a transition away from those assets, we can still feel comfortable that the risk is being managed. Um, but there were other companies that came through that analysis where we couldn't get that comfort. Um, you know, one that uh, was a bit of a surprise to us when we first were doing the, the modeling uh, was a, a, a cruise line. Um, and mm. you, know, you don't necessarily think of cruise lines initially as being a, a climate risk uh, company, but the reality is, no. is that these are long-lived assets. They make most of their money in the Caribbean, um, and if you've got fewer days of sailing because of more hurricanes, and fewer people are comfortable, you know, being out there, um, and can't repurpose these assets to other markets because of you know the, the size and so on, um, they actually have an embedded climate risk. Now, there's clearly been some bigger issues for the cruise industry in the last few months. Um, but it, doing that analysis a, a couple of years ago helped us to think about uh, that, that actually these were higher risk uh, companies than we perhaps thought. There wasn't necessarily an engagement path there that we thought would de-risk. And so that, would, that motivated us to, to change our positioning uh, around, uh, around those companies. Um, so so the, the, the tool and the analytical capability um, and building that into our investment processes, we, we think is, has helped us to you know, to see risks that we might not have otherwise noticed. 
and to prioritize our mm -hmm. engagements and ultimately to the decision to to take thermal coal mining and, and thermal coal generating expansion out of our portfolios full stop because those are just risks that we felt we didn't want to continue to, to carry for economic reasons on behalf of our clients. And I know that Nieberger Berman recently hired several ESG focus teams. So I think one is on Japanese equities, another one is on global equities, still coming through, not quite finalized yet, but nonetheless, the intention is there. So are there any specific kind of target areas that uh, you are looking at? So what is the strategic thinking behind those hirings and why are you making them now? So we're, we're obviously excited to continue to, to strengthen and expand our, our, our platform. You know, if you think about where ESG analysis can add a lot of value, um, obviously when you get to places like Japanese small and mid-cap companies, where there's a huge amount of opportunity to engage, to improve disclosure, to improve, improve ESG performance, you know, that's a space where an active concentrated strategy is just perfectly positioned to both deliver strong investment performance and also a great uh, series of improvements in those companies on ESG practices. Um, the team that's running that strategy in Tokyo, uh, who, as you say, joined us uh, earlier in the year um, and who I work with closely, you know, the companies that they invest in, about half of them have no third party ESG coverage from the major ratings providers. So you know, it literally means that, that we are providing a view on the ESG practices of those companies that, that no one can just buy off the shelf. Um, so we think that that type of approach is a place that uh, our clients see as being very valuable um, and allows us to really uh, deliver you know, meaningful change uh, for the companies that we're investing in over a you know, medium to long time period, right? These aren't short uh, shifts. Uh, and so the whole period tends to be quite long. But stepping back from the Japanese example, you're right, we're, we're looking at expanding our capabilities more, more broadly. Um, and you know, we know that the clients want both regional strategies, whether it's you know, focused on China or India or Japan, as well as global solutions that have a sustainable or an impact focus. And so uh, in our public equity offerings, uh, you know, we're expanding our capabilities um, on both sustainable and impact um, to, to be able to respond to that demand. And outside of equities, we've done, uh, I think, a couple of things that are quite interesting on the fixed income side. Uh, looking at, at both uh, the high yield market and how we can use engagement in the high yield market as well as a sustainability focus to drive outcomes. You know, something that very few credit investors do. Um, you know, there's a lot of focus on green bonds, which are interesting and important. But once you get to smaller issuers, private space, and ultimately a higher yield for, for investors, um, you know, there aren't green bonds in that market in the same quantity. So we've got to be much more creative and have a focus on engagement to push companies to improve their practices and contribute to the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals through their operations, products and services. Mm -hmm. So with high yield, I saw that you engaged, for example, with United Rentals and maybe even Netflix. Is that correct? Yes, yes. So the high yield team um, on our corporate credit team on, on that uh, uh, of the global high yield team, you know, absolutely engaging with, with some of those companies. Um, also, you know, the, the high yield space as a whole has a lot of tech companies, obviously Netflix is in that, in that category, but also companies in the, in the healthcare and pharmaceutical space. So we've done a lot on drug pricing, access to medicines, um, you know, those types of topics um, as well. Um, so it's, it's a, a space where having credit analysts who can sit across from a CFO or a CEO or board chairman and say, look, this is going to affect 
how much we're willing to pay for, for your issuance. Uh, you know, it's a market that's not as efficient and it's one where prices do get negotiated a bit more um, mm -hmm. than you would find in the investment grade space. And so having the portfolio manager or the credit analyst explaining why these environmental social governance topics are important has, uh, has been very effective, we found, in, in, uh, in, in having a constructive dialogue that leads to improved disclosure and performance. Jonathan, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me.